This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. 
So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Andrew Biggio. Now, Andrew is not only a Marine and a law enforcement officer, but he is the man behind The Rifle. Realizing that we are losing so many members of the World War II generation, he embarked on a mission to interview as many of the World War II veterans as he could, carrying an M1 Garand with him and having each of those veterans sign it. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Andrew Biggio. Enjoy. Well, Andrew, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very, very busy at the moment. You're in the middle of writing a second book now, but taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No problem at all. I love it. Thank you. So where chronologically, excuse me, where geographically are we finding you today? I am in the greater Boston area, Boston, Massachusetts. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Um, I was born right here in Boston um, in 1987. I'm a Boston kid my whole life in and around the city of Boston. Um, I grew up uh, pretty much poor with my mother in, the, in public housing uh, in the projects. Uh, my mom was a single mother. She was 18 years old when she had me and, and she grew up. It was not only just like my mother, but also like an older sister in in a way. And um, my both my grandfathers had uh, lost a brother in World War Two. So I had learned about uh, sacrifice early as a kid because my grandfather on my father's side was killed in action. And my grandfather on my mother's side, his brother was killed in action uh, during the Second World War. So I grew up and one of them I'm named after Andrew Biggio. So. I grew up in an Italian-American, uh, greater Boston area family, um, neighborhood mostly Italian-Americans, and learned early on about sacrifice. <clears throat> so you you talk about your grandparents or your grandfather's brothers being killed. Were your grandfathers themselves also serving, but they just got to come home? Correct. Yep. My uh, grandfather, uh, Masmeno, um, Italian immigrant, born in 1912. Uh, was with the 10th Armored Division in the Battle of Bastogne. He was one of the first men in Bastogne before the 101st Airborne. Uh, he was wounded on December 30th. Uh, and he got a letter that his brother had been killed in the Philippines. Five brothers from Italy. Um, 
And then Andrew Biggio, uh, John, John Biggio was in the Navy, my grandfather and his brother, his older brother, Andrew, who I'm named after was coincidentally, ironically, sadly, um, ironically killed in Italy, killed in combat in Italy, fighting, uh, the Germans on the North Apennine mountain range at age 19 years old. And, uh, that's who I was named after. Well, the mental health discussion is obviously becoming more prevalent now in our professions. Had you any opportunities to talk with your grandfathers and maybe see some of the similarities between the cost of service wearing our uniform versus the the cost of serving in World War II? So I actually made it up. So my grandfather uh, died the same year I was born, uh, the one that was in Bastogne. And I've been doing a lot of his footsteps researching. But I made it a point just because my grandfathers weren't here. I went and met other people's grandfathers, you know, and I made a specific point to interview World War II veterans who then became cops, who then became police officers, who then became state troopers. Um, I made it a point to do that because here in Massachusetts for a long time, you know, we had wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for almost 20 years. And when you come home as a veteran, you get veterans preference on the list to become a police officer. And after 20 years, of course, civilians were getting a little annoyed at that. They tried to say that if a veteran has been diagnosed with PTSD, they should be bypassed. They shouldn't qualify for the job as a cop. And um, so I made it a point to interview World War II veterans who became police officers, had long, beautiful careers, 20, 30 years in the force to prove that was all false. Um, And so, um, Yesterday, I just lost one of my favorite veterans, uh, who's chapter seven in my book, The Rifle. His name was Gunnery Sergeant Bernie Ruchin. He was on the New York State Police for 20 years and was a, um, also a Marine who was wounded in Saipan and wounded in Korea and had killed Japanese combatants with his bayonet. I mean, he was in the, the largest bayonet charge of World War II. And this guy went on, became a great police officer, a great family man. And a great father. And that was one of, he was in my book, The Rifle, in chapter seven, he's one of those classic examples of someone who could prevail in a, in a career in law enforcement after seeing, a, seeing heinous uh, fighting. Now, when you look back, and I obviously want to get onto your journey as well, but just while we're on this topic, you interview all these different men um, who transitioned into the, the first responder professions. And had these healthy careers. As we know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of men and women that serve that sometimes have barely been on the job and they succumb to the demons that they're fighting. Were there any common denominators between the positive coping mechanisms that these men had in their lives that then allowed them to thrive in this profession versus succumb to it? You know, um, and one thing that Gunnery Sergeant Bernard Ruchin taught me was that everyone's built with a different composition, um, and and that's that's just truth. You know, um, everybody's different. Everyone can handle uh, trauma differently, but you can get ahead of yourself with the trauma you're exposed to by putting yourself in a circle of other warriors, other police officers, other veterans. Um, you can get ahead of it. Um, he taught me the red flags to see before you do go over the deep end. <clears throat> Other veterans, I had a World War II veteran who was 98 years old. He fought on Iwo Jima. I mean, he showed me the scars on his wrists that he tried to cut his own wrists after the war. And he taught me about the red flags to see. And the common denominator was, you know, both on both things, on both periods, 
um, it was, you know, if you get an injury to your back, to your legs, to your knee, you go to a physical therapist and you make that injury better. You make that muscle stronger. The brain's no different. The brain's no different. And um, that's what I saw, I think, was the common denominator with both in now in law enforcement and in former military forces to get ahead of it before you know it, to address it. And I think a lot of programs today in law enforcement are, are, are trying to do that. But you still have the whole concept of the alpha male uh, occupation of not wanting to you know, be a wussy and things like that. So we're still battling a little bit of that stuff in today's culture. We just got the definition of alpha completely wrong. It's like a, a caricature of a man, not what a man actually is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on that topic, something that I've talked about a lot is that facade of masculinity. You know, we talk about toxic masculinity. I think if you want to use that term correctly, it's this facade. It's this men should never cry. Men should be strong. Men, you know, bury your feelings, suck it up, all that bullshit. Um, what I see is actually, you know, it's kindness and compassion that drives men into service in the first place. And so to forget the very thing that put you in uniform is insanity. What is... What did you see as far as common denominators of some of the, the kindness and compassion in these uber warriors that you got to sit with? You know, it's funny because we talk about the greatest generation um, and the greatest generation did some not so great things to win World War II. You know, stuff that would get our guys in trouble today or put our guys in jail. They got to get away with it. And I saw a lot of, uh, you know, I saw a lot of regret, a lot of uh, sympathy for the Germans, sympathy for the even the Japanese, which was like few and far between for guys who fought in the Pacific, a much more macabre uh, campaign. Um, but I started to see in their late 90s some sympathy. Um, and, you know, the Germans were just doing what they were told. They were just doing their job and, you know, remembering and, for, and, and feeling bad about marching um, a group of SS into the woods to execute them. Even a Marine who was on Peleliu, like one of the worst, heinous, macabre, human trophy fighting war, warfare stories um, that he would still, he'd forgive the Japanese today, you know. And I think I started to see that, you know, a lot, which... You, you don't hear from a lot, but I think at their age, they don't want to die with secrets. They don't want to die or, with regrets. So, you know, I saw a little bit of that, that kindness, but also, I mean, the common denominator of kindness of them just opening their doors to me, a stranger. They've never met a young, a young man with a rifle who wants to come to their house to sit with them uh, in their, in their beyond golden years. And, you know, each veteran I went and spoke to, I had them sign my M1 rifle. You know, I know we didn't actually talk about what the rifle was, but, you know, I brought this M1 rifle with me, which was the standard rifle of that time. I put it in their hands and the rifle acted as a microphone because they had so many memories, whether they used it in combat or they used it in basic training. Um, they had so many memories going through their head and I had each one of them sign their name to this rifle. So on this rifle, I have a solid 300 World War II veterans. I picked nine of the best stories for the book, obviously. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, I want to get to that book and all the kind of um, conversations that you had. While we're on the, the history of trauma, you talk about, you know, having a single mother being um, grown up in a poorer area. One of the things that I've realized a common denominator for me after 700 plus episodes is that a lot of us that wear uniform 
have an elephant, elephant, an element, not an elephant <clears throat> of trauma, an elephant in the room, um, an element of trauma in our childhood. So before we ever put the uniform on, there, uh, there, there's a kind of fragility to some people's um, foundation in the first place. When when you look back at your upbringing, were there elements? I mean, just because you grew up in a poor area, just because you were a single mother, doesn't mean naturally that there were, was trauma. But when you look back now with this kind of mental health lens that you have, were there elements of your upbringing that brought some trauma, kind of filled part of the bucket before you walked into the Marines? Absolutely. Or it just walked into law enforcement. You know, um, it, the, my goal since I was, I can remember. And all my friends say, hey, one thing I got to say about you is you literally <laughs> kept your goal in mind since you were four, since you were five, since I've known you. The kids I grew up with, childhood, you literally said you wanted to be a Marine and a cop, and you did that. I've, they said, I've never met anyone who had their eyes on the prize since they were that young and, and got both done um, and stayed with that. So, yeah, no, there was definitely elements of trauma. I, I was living in public housing. I, I used to listen to the domestic disturbances through the wall of my bedroom on the next apartment over, I used to hear this woman getting her ass kicked by her boyfriend or husband and uh, coffee tables being thrown around. And I used to sleep with a steak knife under my pillow, you know, thinking that what if they ever came into my house? Um, you know, uh, and, and then be, and beyond that. So yeah. And then when the cops would show up, they were my heroes. They would kick ass, throw everyone in the back of the wagon. And, um, that was the, the best. I wanted to be the heroes, you know? Now, what about, Sports and athletics. What were you doing and playing when you were in the school age? Um, football, football, football. Football was really big in the in the city. I grew up in Everett, Massachusetts, and uh, I played football. Lived to high school. In high school, I I didn't really hit a growth spurt, but I found wrestling. So I started wrestling through high school. Wrestled varsity, um, <clears throat> and then in two thousand six is when I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Now, an interesting thing for people that have done team sports and individual sports, even though obviously you're on a team, um, I played hockey in school, um, which is kind of like ice hockey without skates. Um, but then I also did martial arts. So again, you're part of a team, but ultimately you're the only person on the mat against your opponent. What did you pull as far as t the takeaways for the military and the takeaways from law enforcement, the team sport versus the individual sport? Oh, man. Um you know, there was at, at, at the team sports, you know, obviously you get to boot camp in the team sports and you realize everyone's going to work together. You're all one team. It doesn't matter how fast someone runs. Uh, you're only as fast as your slowest person, that kind of thing on the team sports. But in the individual sports, you know, when I was wrestling these other kids from all these other high schools, when you get into the Marine Corps, you might be the last man standing in a fight or battle or whatever. So I remember when they gave us the pugil sticks, which are those big uh, Q-tip looking things. Um, it was me versus him in a bunker, let's just say. And he's an enemy soldier and I'm an enemy soldier. And who's going to win? Um, so on that on that sort of occasion, it's just <laughs> you're not going to stop till you're eating his heart, right? But on the team sports, it's you know, you're only strong as your weakest link, and your weakest link can cost you the game. So, now you mentioned about having a desire to be a marine and a police officer. As you're progressing through high school, which of those two professions kind of you know was the strongest pull first? Well, because I was in high school, nine eleven happened, so that was Marines, Marines, go get your ass in the Marines as fast as you can. Um, and so I think I was a sophomore or a freshman when September 11th happened. And I said, oh, 
fuck, I'm going to miss the whole war. It's going to be over by the time I graduate high school. And it wasn't. And I got to go to both of them, Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, the, it, because of 9-11, it was hurry up, catch your war, get your piece of history. So Now, a common denominator in households that are single parents, especially if it's you know someone growing up with a mother in their households, is the more often than not there is a father figure of some sort that shows up whether it's you know uh, a recruiter whether it's a sports coach you know a scouts master whatever it is as you progress through was there someone before you entered the marines or did the military become that for you um i want to say it, the military became that for me because he, you know even at such a young age i mean i remember as early as fourth grade i was looking at marine corps books um you know and I, like i said my grandfathers had been too old to consult with the war about them um to them and that the the there were some other influencers definitely male role models coming and going in my life but none of them that was like that sealed the deal to say um you know i'm gonna guide you to the marines the marines kind of became that for me and then you know, while I was in the Marines or when I got out of the Marines, meeting the older veterans definitely became those people for me, too. Now, what did you have uh, an interesting enlistment story? I've had such a spectrum on this show from, you know, I just showed up and signed where they told me to and I got sent where I was sent through to Pat McNamara bringing his his father, sending him with a lawyer to make sure he got exactly what he wanted. So what was what was that story? And then walk me through your boot camp as well. Yeah, I actually went to go see a recruiter i said i had some questions uh and they're like sure sit on down and i said you know i i don't think i want to be infantry i'd rather be like something in support i don't feel like living in a dirt hole i heard nothing good about it so i was going to be logistics uh was the name of the specialty i went home told my buddy who was had already got out of the marines i said yeah i'm gonna go be an em embarkation and logistics specialist he goes no you're not you call him right now and you tell him infantry or nothing. <laughs> infantry or nothing. And I'm like, are you sure about this? He's like, yes, you're going to be in the infantry. But I'm like, you know, okay, fine. So I told the recruiter I want infantry. And oh, sure enough, there was an infantry position available. And that was the end of that. I was a grunt. And so um, my, mom, my mom, who was always supportive of me, started to become really all of a sudden protective. You know, now that it was game day, it was game time to actually get ready and go and sign up. And I remember her yelling at one of the recruiters like, yeah, don't call back here. And I'm like, mom, this, you know this is what I want to do, you know. And um, so we actually had to call the recruiter up. I apologized to the recruiter for my mother. He's like, oh, no, it happens all the time. You know, he deals with it every day. I enlisted, and when I got to Paris Island – Lo and behold, the date I landed on Paris Island, South Carolina, Marine Corps boot camp, it was 666, 6606. And it sure was the devil's day, that's for sure. So let me get this right. I had a friend who was a corpsman in the Marines, um, and he referred to anyone who wasn't infantry as a pogue. Is that what you would have been? Yes, I would have been a pogue, a person other than a grunt. Okay, and your book would have been called The Stapler in that case. Yeah, yeah the uh, the forklift, yep. <laughs> All right, well then, um, I know that Iraq was your first deployment, so what I would love to do is preface a question I ask anyone who saw combat. 
in the States especially, we get a very polarized view of war through the television stations that seem to have all the airtime. Either a very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, or a very anti-war, they're all a bunch of baby killers. And then you have the men and women that we actually, or the children that we actually send to, you know, fight for our country. It's a two-part question. The first part, was there a moment where, regardless of the politics that sent you to that particular place, that you realized that there were atrocities being committed and, and you had a job to do? Uh, atrocities committed being on, on what side? I mean, any, anything that you saw. I mean, I'm, I'm usually I'm assuming it's on the people in that country themselves. Yeah, you know, um, Iraq, I got to Iraq, I guess you would consider 2008 fairly late because the war had begun in 03. So the, uh, for me personally, the heavy combat, I guess, was kind of at the end, and I was part of President Bush's surge. Although there were guys still dying, um, nobody had like died in my arms or anything like that uh, traumatic. But the, it was awkward being in Iraq because I, you know, we were in Afghanistan at the same time. I didn't really understand why we were there. Yes, I know Saddam Hussein was a bad guy and he did some atrocities and he has to be outed. But like how many leaders in the world did those kind of things? Are we supposed to just invade every country because of that? Um, so there wasn't, you know, I signed up to fight in Iraq because I thought it was badass. But at the end of the day, I signed up to fight in the Marine Corps because I wanted to go serve in Afghanistan and, and defeat the Taliban who harbored Al Qaeda or whatever. Well, when I was in Iraq, when I realized this is the greatest thing I've ever done was we went into a village and I remember all these kids swarming my Humvee and I, I um, <clears throat> sorry, I got an incoming call. Um, I'll fix that. So we went to a village in Iraq and I handed these kids a clean bottle of water and you would have thought that I gave them a PlayStation three or an Xbox or something. The, the how they got exciting, how, how much they got excited over this clean bottle of water. I mean, they were cheering up and down, giving their, I gave them their father some food. They were so grateful kissing my shoes. You know, it, it was like, wow. This is amazing. The fact like kids in my country will never know what it's like to be this desperate for clean food and water. And that's when I felt really good about being a humanitarian Marine and not just uh, an invading Marine. So. so same question. What about your experience in Afghanistan? Did that change when you got there? Afghanistan was a little more dangerous. Afghanistan was um, there was no uh, it didn't seem like there was any value for human life. Um, the Afghans would kill the Afghans like it was nothing. Um, it was very dirty, like very just dirty, foul play, put an IED anywhere, blow up a cop, blow up a civilian, doesn't matter. There's no repercussions of who's doing it. It just was something different. And, um, and to me, I just don't think we got to unleash the full beast there before we left because now, you know, the enemy's back in control, basically. Um, and here we are, we had all these Marines ready to rock and roll it. You know, I, it still bothers me that you can win every battle, but then lose the war. You know, um, I'm very upset about what happened in Afghanistan. I remember being in my police station last summer, watching it all unfold at the airport and just very embarrassed, you know, uh, amongst my coworkers, like, and just suddenly I became a Vietnam veteran just like that, you know, um, 
because I just, I don't understand. I don't get it. You know, the Taliban were, were petrified of us. They wouldn't even show. You could barely find a guy that would claim he was Taliban when I was there. And then how is there miles of convoys of them driving into Kabul? So with that question I gave before, the other side of it is, you know, were there moments of kindness and compassion? Now, I would consider your Iraq story that. What about in Afghanistan, even though you're in this conflict zone and there's such cruelty yeah. amongst extremists? Yeah, the kids there, I gave them candy and food. The, um, the Afghan police and the Afghan soldiers really wanted to be just like you. Like they wanted to dress like you. They wanted to be like a Marine. They wanted to do their hair like a Marine, wear their uniform like a Marine. They were ready to die for their country, and I witnessed them do that. Um, they really wanted it. They were brave, brave Afghans who believed in our mission there. They wanted to be just like us, special forces, U.S. Marines, soldiers. Um, and they were dying, you know, left and right, basically, for their country. And um, it really sucks that, you know, we left so many over there that didn't get to see it finished the, the correct way. And so... You know, the, of course, the civilians, and the kids I treated with respect, but most likely, I think my biggest bond of kindness was to that fellow Afghan police officer. Um, I lived on a little a police station with about probably 60 to 70 of them. There was like 20 of us living with them. And I remember lending them my clothes, cooking for them every night, um, making big pasta meals. My girlfriend at that time would mail me pasta and she'd bubble wrap jars, glass jars of tomato sauce, mail them to me and I'd cook pasta for all the afghans on the police station beautiful well i want to get to the withdrawals i think that's an important perspective but before we do um what made you ultimately transition out and what was your specific transition story and the reason i asked that whether it's the military or the first responder professions and i'm sure probably you heard some from the world war ii vets when we're in you have that band of brothers you have those you know men and women that that are a tribe you know, when we leave, that door closes behind us or, you know, your ID doesn't work anymore. You've lost that tribe. You've lost that kind of sense of purpose sometimes. And if you've identified purely as a Marine or a firefighter, it can be a very, very traumatic time for people. Yeah, my my leaving was I said, OK, well, I did tours Iraq, Afghanistan. I'm a sergeant now. Um, what else am I actually going to accomplish? Definitely didn't want to stay in. It was uh, really not having control of your own life and being at the mercy of someone else that I said, that's is it. Like, and plus I wanted to go be a police officer, start a life, have that white picket fence, have that home. So I wanted out. I remember getting on my Harley Davidson that day or just hitting the road, driving straight to Boston on my bike, on my motorcycle. And a lot of my friends got out. I actually don't know a single guy that reenlisted, um, which is, kind of sad you know um i i often wonder if i was in a different branch would i have stayed in would i've stayed in the army navy whatever um, but i wanted to get out buy a home be a police officer and i wanted to be home you know i did two deployments to combat zones i was in for six years i had no control of my life you know so it, it was time to not be treated like a, a child anymore um and the most of the world war ii guys i met were drafted so they hated, they never really wanted to go. Like, yes, I met guys who volunteered after Pearl Harbor, of course, but the majority of the guys I met were drafted. So they wanted to come home and move on with their life as well. They never wanted to be in war. They never wanted to be a warrior. They never wanted to be a Marine since they were four years old like me. And 
if you think about it, well, who were their role models? Maybe a World War One veteran. I met a lot of World War Two veterans that their dads were veterans of World War One, but I also met a lot of them that their parents weren't. So this warfare was new to them because before World War One, you had I think the Spanish American War or something, you know. So um, there wasn't the lineage really starts at World War Two and the unit and divisional history starts at world war two for everyone now that's been joining because they saw paratroopers jump into Normandy or the flag raising on Iwo Jima. So question for you, an observation that I've made a lot of the issues that we're seeing now. Um, and it's sad because it kind of lines up almost perfectly chronologically with the prohibition of drugs. Um, I would argue that you can probably go back at least two generations to the genesis of a lot of the broken homes of today, a lot of the addiction for today, a lot of the homelessness. Um, we have this assumption, and I bought into this too. I've literally heard my conversations change as I've become more educated. But we thought, well, the World War II veterans all came back to ticker tape parades, and you know they were all lauded as heroes, and they transitioned, and they rolled up their sleeves, and they made this the greatest country on, in, on earth. But then you hear a lot of these stories and granddad was actually an alcoholic and granddad, you know, was 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 violent and all these things. Um, when when you've heard some of these stories, uh, did you hear a lot of uh, difficulties transitioning from these guys? You mentioned one, Bernie, who seemed to do very well. Were there a lot of elements of struggle of some of these people that you, you talked to? Hands down. And that's why I can't stand when people say to me. Um, you know, what's wrong with the Iraq and Afghanistan generation? Why are these guys coming home with so many problems and the World War II guys came home fine? And I go, because that's not true. That's that they just hid it better. The government, the culture, the mainstream media hid it better back then in the 1940s. They didn't want to promote that we sent our guys out there and they became mental cases. They didn't want to promote that there was combat fatigue or shell shock. Nobody wanted to admit that. But yes, I've met guys. I, I know a World War II veteran. He just got out of jail two months ago. He's 98. He killed a guy in 1959. I know a World War II veteran that was a bank robber. I know a World War II veteran who beat his wife, beat his kids. Um, I went to Normandy with a World War II veteran who I won't name. And I remember his son pulling me aside. And, and his son was probably like 70 something. His dad was 98. He said, um, hey, I just want to thank you for bringing me and my dad here. Uh, I've never knew, realized what he went through. And I want to let you know that I didn't talk to my dad for about 10 years. He was um, abusive. He was a drunk. He threw the living room couch out the window of the house, the second story window of the house. Um, I used to dread going home to him. Um, the, I, I've heard these stories on and on and on. This is the greatest generation, right? So, that's why I've guilted so many of them to talk and to record their stories because I tell them the younger generation of veterans need to know what to expect, need to know how you made it to your age. I remember, um, like I said, I had a couple of veterans that attempted suicide, World War II. And, you know, that's, that's what it is. It's the damn truth. Um, and I met a lot of guys that obviously were, were, pleasant as a <laughs> snug as a bug and, and pleasant as a fairy tale but that just wasn't all the case i mean these guys built the american legion halls the vfw halls these are watering holes you know these are they built their own bars you know this is the way it was so 
Yeah, well, thank you, because I don't get to speak to very many World War II veterans at all. I actually had one gentleman, Frank Wright, who was a Marine Raider, one of the first Raiders. He was wounded on Iwo Jima. He fought um, other islands before that. Amazing man, but he actually wrote, and I think it was very recently, he wrote a book, and it was about his PTSD. And it was such a powerful conversation. Firstly, he outbladdered me. I had to stop to pee before he did. I mean, this guy is sharp as a tack. But secondly... We just don't hear that vulnerability from that generation. I think what's sad is we probably projected it. So we probably put up brick walls for them to be able to speak because we're like, no, shush, you're the greatest generation. And then they probably felt walled in then instead of extending that vulnerability to them. But sadly, because of the age, I think it was too little too late for 99% of them. Yep. Yep. I agree to that. I think a lot of them don't want to die with their secrets anymore. And I've been lucky enough to have them open. Me being a veteran too has helped tremendously. So, so as you transitioned out, I know that you wanted to join law enforcement. What did you have to do to pay the bills until you actually got hired by someone? I was a veterans agent. Um, I, w- I came home and um, applied for um, a few towns away from me, uh, the town of Saugus, Massachusetts, needed a veterans agent. And you were basically going to be the representative for that town, handle all the paperwork, disability claims, uh, home, welcome home bonuses, um, GI Bill, uh, burial benefits for anyone in that, in that city, in that community. So I did that for about two years before I got hired as a police officer. And I love that job too. I met a lot of world war two veterans before I was even into the rifle project. Well, that's such a unique perspective for a young man that was, you know, carrying a rifle himself up until that point. Were there any kind of aha moments as you transitioned the other side? Now you're a civilian seeing all these different veterans from all these generations. Yeah, the Vietnam vets, how screwed they got. Um, I was seeing, you know, and I think they might have been in their late 60s then uh, in 2013. None of them had VA disabilities. I was getting them awarded 100% disability ratings for all these Vietnam vets who were, took 40 years to come home to try to apply for benefits. And they would come to my office two of them in particular crying, giving me uh, gift cards and gifts and thanking them for getting disability. I met a bunch of World War II veterans who were trying to up their disability too. This was back in 2013. There was so many of them. Um, I remember I had a World War II veteran cry in my office. He was crying. His brother was killed in the war. And I said, sir, you have post-traumatic stress. We need to put in for this disability. And he said, yeah, my brother was killed in the war. His name was Arthur DeFranzo. And I looked him up and Arthur DeFranzo actually won the Congressional Medal of Honor. His brother was a Medal of Honor recipient. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. I had I had a, a, a gentleman, you may recognize his name, uh, Major James Capers. He was one of the original um, Marine Recon in Vietnam. Yep. So he was on the show. And again, when you hear... I mean, so many of the Vietnam vets have been on, but his one especially, he was mortally wounded, almost near mortally wounded, I guess was the term, um, in Vietnam, um, was airlifted out, was on the tarmac at, you know, at a U.S. Uh, airbase, and someone walked up and pissed on him. He's, you know, completely wounded, covered in blood, and they urinated yeah. on him. This is a man that, again, as you said, so many of these people were, cons- you know, sent beyond, uh, excuse me, against their will. Some of them signed up, but n- probably not before, um, excuse me, 
they enlisted before this thing even kicked off. So they found themselves in this conflict. You know, they do all these things supposedly in the name of, of, of good for this country. And they come back to that. And, you know, we wonder now why that generation, as they retire out of what a profession they found themselves in, seem to be making up in a majority of the suicides from, you know, from the military. Yeah. And just, you know, even like there's all sorts of statistics out there that like, the uh, the average World War II veteran saw about you know something like fifty to hundred days of combat, and the average Vietnam veteran saw like three hundred. You know, just crazy statistics stuff that I you know I haven't got a chance to get into because I'm I'm finishing up my last uh, World War II realm here before I get into other wars. Brilliant. All right. Well, then your journey into law enforcement. Um, which department did you find yourself in? Um, why did you choose that department, and what was your kind of on ramp experience? So my first five years, I served on the transit police in downtown Boston. So I worked in the subways, um, the transit system, the buses uh, in the city of Boston. And um, I chose it because they were the first ones to hire me. You know, uh, I said, I'll take that job and see where it goes. And um, that was very high speed. You know, I was constantly uh, de- dealing with juveniles, dealing with the homeless, dealing with the vagrants. Um the city life, Boston, one of the you know biggest cities in the United States. So I uh, was very active, probably made about 100 arrests, um, a lot of drug arrests. Um, and then um, I took a job here in the town of Winthrop, Massachusetts, where I'm currently a narcotics detective uh, and the SWAT operator. How did you find that your time as a Marine uh, factored into your law enforcement profession? Definitely when I was in the police academy, it was discipline. Um, you know, I didn't take offense when the academy instructors yelled at you. I didn't take offense when anyone yelled at me, even a civilian. Um, so it was the discipline that used to being broken down. Um, I saw that play a huge factor, you know. Um, a lot of people who hadn't been in the military that went in were like, oh, my God, the instructor said this to me. No, I can't do this anymore. And, and why does he have it out for me? You know, things like that. And, um, and then they would, some of them would just dwell, like, you know, some scumbag on the street mouths off to them and they dwell on it for like two or three days. I'm like, are, are you really still thinking about this? Like, this is, you know, so I think that's where it kind of prepped me a little bit, um, to just be prepared to hear and see anything, so to speak. A, a lot of people, oh, the military, uh, it, it's good for law enforcement because you're good with guns and it makes you a good shot. And that's not, not the case, you know? So people, I know shoot better than i do so <laughs> now did you get hired at 2015 have i got that right the transit please yep yeah i got on in 2015 early 2015 yep now was there a kind of still a domino effect from the bombings that that affected the way you guys are trained maybe prior to that absolutely because 2013 was my was the exam date um so they they postponed my exam because of the marathon bombings which i actually was there too uh, as a civilian. Um, so yeah, everything started to change a little bit. The dynamic, there was a huge support for law enforcement. And then around 2015, there was this huge plummet of, um, I, uh, it was, um, I think it was Michael Brown that was killed in Ferguson, Missouri was ended up becoming a huge part of the Academy and what the do's and don'ts and what not to say and what not get involved. And it started to become a lot of red tape in and around that time frame the uh, 
the hands up, don't shoot movement. I believe that was that time frame. Now, what about the the fitness standards and the level of combatives training, or, or um, you know, uh, forgive me, I'm forgetting the the wrong law enforcement word, but the ability to handcuff someone. Um, how did that compare to some of the training that you had, or the level of training that you had as a Marine infantryman? So definitely the running. I mean, um, I went to a pre- one of the the top notch police academies in the state of Massachusetts. I went to the transit police Academy. And by the time we had been graduating, we were as a class running 14 miles. Um, I had already gone. I wasn't the best shaped person in the, in the Academy. I was the best in best shape Marine um, there. Uh, I was good with the running. I was uh, always finishing first in in the group of, of uh, there with uh, in regards to who was a Marine Corps veteran and whatnot. Um, so I, I was pretty in shape with the running and the push-ups, and my strength was good that I had kept doing and kept active, uh, since I had been out of the actual Marine Corps. Um, I was, a I got out of the Marine Corps, I think as a brown belt, which is just under a black belt, um, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so we, we were good with that. And then, uh, the handcuffing techniques, I was... I had to learn like everyone else when we got into the academy. So with that, then that's interesting. Are you a black belt now, then? No, no, I haven't done a lick of any type of <laughs> martial art since then. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was a brown belt. Yeah, I was green and then brown. So okay. Well, with yeah. with that training, though, I mean, what are what are your perspectives of that kind of training, the the kind of jujitsu um, and wrestling element of that in law enforcement? Because there seems to be such a diverse group of men and women wearing uniform from these absolute machines that are incredible physical condition that are, you know, jujitsu black belts and, you know, wrestlers and all this stuff. And then you have the other side of the spectrum, which sadly makes the YouTube, you know, highlights a lot. You know, what is your perspective coming from the Marines and that combative training that you had on the bar being set in law enforcement? Um, yeah, you know, I think that I'm probably where the basic cop should be and um the basic cop isn't there um so i I, like i said i don't consider myself a crazy uh warrior where if we hit the ground i'm definitely winning but i i was pretty basic i was pretty confident that i would win the fight um going into law enforcement i wish every cop was there and i wish every cop had the trigger discipline i did too because it evolves my situations evolve from there even with uh, suspects being armed and suspects having guns to their own heads and um, so unfortunately I can't expect every cop in, in the nation to be as disciplined and be there for me. And that's not blowing hot smoke up my own rear end here. Um, I just, I can see the difference amongst other police officers that don't have that. And, and you see it on the news, you know, we all pay for it every time a cop screws up and kills someone they shouldn't have. And, and I remember one of my instructors said the best when it came to martial arts, jujitsu and defending himself to, in today's world of policing, just because you're getting your ass kicked doesn't mean you can use lethal force and because he said that i always thought about that that i have to be at least decently prepared to physically defend myself because just because i'm getting my ass kicked just because i'm getting punched doesn't mean i can take out the gun and kill a guy anymore because they will burn the city down i'll lose my job it doesn't count so you better be ready to rock and roll so how has that affected the morale in your department because you have these officers, obviously, that are trained the way they're supposed to. They maintain their physical fitness. Um, but that hesitation 
is obviously something that is that can be dangerous. As, as a, a police officer in um, Orange County here in Florida that we lost, Brandon Coates, and he was found um, with his taser deployed and he was shot to death on a traffic stop. So what are, what has that done? What have you seen as far as the the kind of um, evolution of that in this, the time that you spent in law enforcement, the, the handcuffing of you guys in some areas? Some areas, obviously, the... The, the the person should never have been shot in the first place and we know that or you know knelt on or whatever it is but what i worry about is that the decision making has kind of been shackled and that has created us losing more law enforcement officers uh absolutely i'm i'm one of them i should be dead um so it, it it's yeah of course people don't want to become cops because they want they want rounds whizzing by your head before you can defend yourself that's the way it is you are a human punching bag. So I was I was almost killed myself in the line of duty because I hesitated. And we got a, um, a call for actually, coincidentally, a Marine who was calling the crisis hotline, the VA suicide crisis hotline. And the crisis hotline called my department and said, hey, we have a Marine Corps veteran who was suicidal. Um, he's at blah, blah, blah street. And I said, oh, I got it. This is easy. This is going to be an easy one for me. I'm a Marine too. And I'll talk him into an ambulance. And that's going to be the end of it. Well, I got to the home and he was outside in the car with a gun to his chin. And I went up the, to the door to talk to him with my own gun out. I said, hey, buddy, relax. You know, I'm Marine. No worries. Of course, he was a black male. I'm a white male. Um, and I said, just put the gun down. I'm I'm the perfect guy to show up to this call. I'm a Marine too, man. Just put the gun down. We'll talk. No problem. And he took the gun off his chin and pointed it in my face, just like that. So I backed up, rolled out of the way. And right then and there, textbook, I should have returned fire, killed the threat, but I didn't. I rolled out of the way. He put the, ch- the gun back under his chin, and I knew he was just trying to get me to end his own life. And uh, my body and mind was reading him. Um, I often wonder how many cops in this country have read someone the wrong way on that so i reapproached the door again the car door while he was sitting there and i said god damn it dude i just got done telling you i'm a marine do not do this to us both of us now you're gonna do this to both of us really he took the gun off his chin again and then started to illuminate me with his you know little surefire light he had on the pistol and i rolled behind the car and i said i can't believe i have to kill another marine and he's Burned out the tires and did about 100 miles an hour after town. We got into a car chase. Another agency from the neighboring city pinned him in. He shot himself in the head. The bullet went out his left eye and he actually lived. So it went through his face and out his left eye. But that whole night I didn't sleep because what if he had killed another cop for a neighboring agency because I didn't do my job right there on the spot? What if I shot and killed them then? I shot and killed a black veteran in need instead of helping him. Um, what if he killed me? What if he just shot me in the head? What about my two kids? Who are they going to grow up with? So I, you know, I delayed because of all that. Did it end the most absolute beautiful way it could have? Yes. He lives. We all live. No one's in trouble, but it could have been so bad because of my hesitation. Textbook. What I should have done is when he took the gun off the second time and pointed at my face, there's no reason why I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have, you know, returned fire. So, but I, I was reading him a different way. But there's a lot of cops out there that don't have that. Let's just call it telekinesis. They don't have that mind reading still don't have that discipline 
um, that have either winded up dead or killed the subject. So I made out there, but that's a classic example of me not wanting to do the job because um, I don't want to be in trouble, <laughs> you know? So, and I didn't want to kill, and the second thing is I didn't want to kill a fellow Marine. Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on one more area before we progress to the book itself. Um, you talked about working in narcotics now. I don't want to lo load the question for you, but I'll just preface it on, you know, kind of my thoughts on this. As a firefighter paramedic, I watched the ripple effect of drug prohibition. You know, the, the, the empowerment of the underworld on prohibition of drugs, sending our mentally ill into that underworld to get their drugs, the homelessness, the prostitution, et cetera, et cetera. So in my opinion, James Gearing's opinion, the war on drugs has been an epic failure. And you look at progressive countries like Portugal that have basically changed the way they deal with addicts. Now, I'm not talking about sellers. I'm not talking about smugglers. I'm talking about the addict. And they're not selling drugs in the stores now. They're just taking the addicts and they're funneling them into addiction, counseling, mental health counseling, job creation to address the mental health element that is sending them into addiction. Without loading the question as a police officer as someone who has you know served in multiple countries what is your perspective of the war on drugs and are there any ways if you were king for a day that we could we could treat addiction better <clears throat> fentanyl and heroin is is the worst thing i've ever seen in my life um it's worse than war it's worse than combat it 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 literally turns people into subhumans. It makes them do things they would never have done, um, both physically, mentally, legally, sexually. Um, it's by far an unofficial kiss of death in a way. And um, to and no, I don't. I <clears throat> I don't think. And no, I, I don't think you're giving them syringes and having. Um, uh, you know, can uh, having trailers set up to, for them to do the drugs is the answer anyway. You know, this the answer is almost simple. Let's go back fifty years. Did we see way uh, crowds of drug addicts in the streets all lined up with syringes? And the answer is no. And then people would say, "Well, why didn't we?" Well, because uh, opium and fentanyl weren't around like it was. Well, yeah, I know it was around. I mean, there was opium dens in Chinatown in Boston back in the day. What what was different? And and the one thing I see is that we closed these mental institutions where people, if need be, need to be in a straitjacket. They need to be in a padded room. They need to be living in a facility. Now it's like, oh, well, they have rights. Well, they their rights also cause more victims. They Then they rob a 7-Eleven because they want to get high or they assault a woman because they're messed up on meth. Get these as if I was king, get these mental institutions up and running again, get these mental homes and strap them in until they're clean. That's the only thing I can think of, you know? Um, and, and we don't, there's, they've shut down a lot of the mental institutions here in the state of Massachusetts. And now we have whole sections of Boston that are like the walking dead, you know? So, yeah, well, I got to sit in Portugal and, and talk to the guy who spearheaded theirs and, and, 
you have the safe addiction, the safe um, injection sites, but those are actual medical facilities where you go and and you are if if you're the one the 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 subset of people, a very small amount that physically cannot kick their addiction, then you go there and you're watched by a medical professional while you know you're given the the safe administered dose that that you are given, whether it's you know something to wean you off or whether it's just that you're you're not going to be able to get off it. But what they've done with everyone else is they've addressed the issue like we talked about with the world war ii veterans you know what was the thing before the thing you know what what is the nucleus of of the trauma that you're trying to fill that void with addiction so i mean i would argue absolutely the mental health side is is needed and some people you know sadly do need to be you know literally incarcerated but there's a lot of people that simply just need counseling need to be able to be empowered to come from out the shadows without a fear of arrest and being funneled into these these mental health initiatives that will then remove that need to be an addict in the first place and then you empower the medical community you take away the power from the underworld yeah i have addicts and alcoholics in my own family um and they they're still addicts and alcoholics because something's there's a cog in the wheel that's not right um, and so something's got to give here. And, um, you know, I don't think throwing the handcuffs on everybody is the answer, but, um, these facilities they close could be doing, I think, like you said, a better job at identifying the mental health on, on addiction. Instead, it's like, it's just this revolving wheel. I, I'm very rarely seeing someone that, that gets clean, you know, and, they're either going to be prescribed suboxone or, 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 you know, baby and babied into something else and getting a free paycheck because they're disabled. And then they just use that paycheck to drink and do more drugs because they have no other responsibilities. So something's broken here, you know? Absolutely. Well, I mean, we've tried, we tried the old model of just arresting everyone that clearly doesn't work. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm up yeah. for something new. All right. Well, then transitioning to um, the rifle. So talk to me about what made you actually write the book. And then you mentioned about physically having the rifle. You know, I'd love to kind of hear what made you decide to buy the M1 Garand. And then let's kind of transition to some of the the stories of the, that you're going to pull from, not only in this book, but in the next one that you're writing at the moment. I started to feel bad for one of my grandfather's brothers who I was named after. I wanted to know more about what happened to him that didn't happen to me in war. And I, I wanted to uncover basically the chronicles of, of what led up to his death and if there was any survivors out there. And in reading his letters, he wrote home that my grandmother saved, my grandfather's wife. She saved all of his letters. And he talked about how much he enjoyed the rifle behind me, the M1 Grant. So that first letter I picked up was dear mom today. I fired the M one grand. It's a beautiful new kind of rifle. It holds eight rounds. I threw that letter down. I had to go buy a M one grand rifle immediately. I wanted to hold what he held. I wanted to feel what he felt. And I'm in my house and I showed my family the rifle and they just viewed it as a gun. And I said, well, no, it's not a gun. This is the rifle that uncle Andy had. So my next best thing was to take it to a world war two veteran. I knew, and I took it to Joe Drago. He was the first person to sign his name on that rifle right there. And we talked about the Battle of Okinawa for about four hours. I mean, I put the rifle in his hands and he puts it in his shoulder and he's waving it around. And at this time, he's about 92. 
very weak. But he was able to put that rifle on the shoulder again and start telling me about the Battle of Okinawa for about four hours. And I'm telling you, he's the one who taught me not war is all black and white. It was not just good versus evil. And he, that some of the heinous things they did that, you know, made the Marines urinating on dead Taliban look like nothing compared to what they used to do. And he made me feel normal. And I asked him to sign his name on that rifle. And I did. And, you know, about, you know, 20 veterans later, I realized how many amazing stories I was capturing and, and their own kids didn't know, hear these stories in detail. And I said, I guess I put in pen to paper and write the book. Well, you, you touched a little bit on, on the first signature and also you told us about Bernie. What are some of the other stories that really kind of jumped out as you started interviewing all these incredible World War II veterans? Yeah, you know, I I interviewed a former prisoner of war where I thought was an incredible story. Um, Clarence Cormier, you know, he, he went on to become a nuclear engineer after the war, but he was captured really on his first day of combat in the Battle of the Bulge. He was at the 106th Infantry Division, and those guys were all captured the first day of the Bulge. They were stuffed into a boxcar, a train boxcar, and the Germans stuffed them in there, and American pilots saw this German train heading back into Germany, and they started strafing it. And little did they know they were strafing their own guys. They were killing their own men. And he broke down crying, telling me that story at age 95 years old. And, man, the fact that he was able to overcome that and his daughter grabbed me and said, I never heard my father tell that story. And that was the icing on the cake. I'm like, if this guy's own daughter hasn't heard this, how many people in the, in the world haven't heard this? And I said, I got to write this book. Um, and that was – and he wasn't one of those guys that was alcoholic, abusive. He had his nightmares at night, but he never took it out on anyone, never took it out on his wife or kids. And I, sometimes I got to sit back and look at those kind of individuals <laughs> And know that if they can be good humans, that I shouldn't come home from a, a day of work aggravated and take it out on my family, you know? Now, one of the, the seemingly um, uh, common denominators, again, I saw this even in my own grandfather, who um, was a uh, anti-aircraft gunner in, in the Orkney Islands in the UK, shooting down German um, bombers as they came over, is there really was... Um, a suppression um, of any stories from World War II. A lot, of, a lot of people that are grandchildren of World War II veterans hardly ever heard them talk about the war. Uh, was there, again, any common denominator? Did they show any kind of inkling of why they stuffed it down so far, even as they progressed into their 80s and 90s? Yeah, my interpretation was that there was so many veterans, right? Everyone was a veteran back then. Everyone, the postman, the doctors, the police, the politicians. You, you, to me, it was like, well, you weren't special. Um, you're not special. What's there to talk about? Everybody saw what you saw. Everyone did what you did. So I felt like it was just a common thing just to move on as a community, as a whole. And that's why I feel like, and then, of course, the movies were just unbelievable back then. You know, John Wayne was in all the movies. Everything was Medal of Honor in and so a lot of guys felt like, well, if I didn't kill a hundred Japanese or if I didn't take out a bunch of German pillboxes on Omaha Beach, then what the hell's my story worth? So I feel like a lot of guys just didn't talk about it. It was just time to move on. And plus, we're talking about the stuff you don't see in the movies and like the valor and the heroism. A lot of veterans never saw that. They saw a lot of scared young kids committing atrocities. And that's... They just wanted to forget about it. 
Now, you've kind of brushed over a little bit, and I mean that in a, in a positive way, um, some of the atrocities that were committed by the Allies, you know, without mm-hmm. naming names, obviously. Just to put into context, because as you said, we've got some of these things that have been highlighted from more recent conflicts and people have been lauded for them. What were some of the things that happened, you know, by these scared children that were sent by us to go fight on foreign soil? What were some of the atrocities that maybe people weren't aware of in the World War II era? Yeah, I mean, obviously, everyone is aware of of the bombing campaigns, the carpet bombings that we don't do anymore, where you put 800 B-17s in the sky and everyone's dropping their payloads on the same target. Um, you know, the firebombing, the just complete annihilation of whole German towns. Um, but, you know, as far as boots on the ground, I mean, I, I, I remember guys from the 17th Airborne Division, you know, especially after the Malmody Massacre, where the SS soldiers killed about 83, 84 U.S. soldiers. Um there was no that spread through the Allied lines during the Battle of the Bulge, and then they weren't taken prisoners. They were giving it right back to the Germans. They were giving it right back to the SS. Um, if you were SS, forget about it. You know, if you were, you, you just weren't captured. That just was a common thing. And I remember, you know, a particular veteran saying they would all the time, whenever they came across some Germans, they would ask for volunteers. The volunteers would march into the woods with the Germans and then come back without them. So, you know, what do you think that means? Yeah, either a really you good know. game of hide-and-seek or they executed him. Right. So what about um, stories of any of these men just, uh, ultimately meeting the enemy? I had a guy, Rich Rice, on the show who's a Vietnam vet. He was actually one of the first Delta guys. And he went back to Vietnam not long ago. And he ended up meeting soldiers that were probably shooting at him at the time did you have any of those stories from any of these veterans i am responsible for those reunions um i've done them three times now um whenever i bring american veterans to belgium or germany i reach out to my fellow german historians young guys like me and we have lunch with german uh veterans and i united and i'm actually that's just so crazy you asked me that because i'm looking at a picture now and if you can see that that's uh, Jurgen, Jurgen Tegatov and Wayne Field. Uh, Jurgen is in the um, the darker suit, and Wayne is in like the uh, plaid shirt. And the two of them are having lunch, and it was Wayne's division, the Sixth Armored Division, that took out Jurgen's tank in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, and to see those two want to talk and meet and. And I remember Wayne's exact quote was, I'm glad we can be the way we are now instead of the way things used to be. And uh, the two of them met about three different times that week and having lunch. Um, I, I united uh, P-47 pilots, German tank killers. I mean, that was their job with German tankers and, and have them reunite. And um, Most of them were positive. I only had one uh, encounter that was kind of negative. I had a, a, a veteran who was uh, of Jewish descent, and I didn't know he was going to ambush me on that, but he started bringing up the Malmody Massacre to the German and, and things like that and was upset and didn't want to sit with him. And and uh, so, you know, he's, he's due that entitlement. Um, but uh, that was tough for him. I probably shouldn't have. You know, I asked if everybody wants to meet the Germans. They all said yes, but I don't think when push come to shove, I don't think you could handle it. So, 
Now, what about their perspective of war? One thing that I've talked about recently is, you know, they say that the term history is doomed to repeat itself. When you take a step back, um, I mean, there's no better example than the Russians and the Ukrainians at the moment. What I see is a tyrant or a handful of tyrants are able to get in a position where they send their children to war and they fight for these tyrants' ideologies. And it seems to be the same thing over and over and over again, whether it's you know Saddam Hussein or Idi Amin or whoever it is at that time. It's the same blueprint, the same structure. With these World War II veterans watching their fellow Americans go to Korea, go to Vietnam, go to you know Iraq and Afghanistan... Did any of them have perspective on 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 you know how we change this? Um, yes, but it's the same song and dance. You know, uh, I went to a lot of ceremonies in Europe, and it was the first war in Europe since World War II, with you know Russia invading Ukraine. I, I had put up um, the Seventeenth Airborne Division monument. In, in Vasel, Germany, where their drop zone was during Operation Varsity, I am responsible, along with my volunteers in the 17th Airborne Association. I put up about a, I think it's about nine feet or seven or nine, seven to nine foot monument in Germany to the American paratroopers who landed in Vasel, Germany. And the mayor came and spoke, and everyone spoke, and it was kind of an odd feeling. We're dedicating a monument to a war that happened 78 years ago while there's a war raging. 800 miles away in, in Ukraine. And so it was a, a bummer. Um, and um, they can, they offered a lot of perspective, but at the end of the day, it's not like problem solving perspective. Uh, besides, they think that war is the most um, lowest form of, of activity, lowest form of action people can take humans killing other humans for what? And, you know, um, some wars are necessary, some aren't in other people's views. And uh, I just think it's this kind of this, uh, you know, not to go back to a broken cog on the wheel, but I mean, it's this round robin of, of the same stuff, you know. I can't imagine being a, a World War One veteran, literally fighting across a field for, you know, and just, you know, climbing over the bodies of your fellow soldiers to then, you know, what, 30 short years later, watch your children be sent to war in the, in, a, in the same landscape and realize that we hadn't learned from that. And then obviously you can't control other nations' actions in that particular one. I think most would argue that almost anyone, even if you were a pacifist normally, would be forced to, to pick up arms in that particular conflict. But it must be so disappointing to come back from Flanders Field and only watch, you know, your children now be sent off to Europe yet again. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm dreading that, like, with just being an, an Afghanistan veteran myself and the Taliban being back in charge, if my poor kids have to go back over there to squash that thing again. You know, that, that worries me. It makes me sick. I, I'd rather get the job done now with me than have my kids go over there and get killed, God forbid, knock on wood. Now, you, you, know? you talk to yourself about, you know, as you said, the, the disappointment um, of that withdrawal. What have you seen as far as, you know, your fellow veterans? Because, I mean... I've had so many people discuss this particular topic. Of course, the the healing element is is you know as you said, whether it's simply handing out water in a country, you know that you did good while you were there. But at the same time, you lost men, you lost limbs, you you brought home trauma mentally to 
take and protect a town which was then lost when when we withdrew so what have you seen as far as a kind of general consensus of some of the the fellow veterans that you serve with in that particular conflict it's yeah it's like 50 50 50 50 of us are like oh my god i can't believe that this is and then like the other 50 are like, oh, I don't even care, man. I've moved on. You know, I, everyone's asking me how, what, how would I feel? I'm like, I don't even care. And I, I don't believe them. I don't believe that they don't care. No way. No how. I think they're just trying to play tough. I think they're just trying to push it over. They absolutely care. These were years of your life that you, you spent in a foreign country, years away from your family. You wanted to be a Marine. You don't tell me you don't want to be part of a winning war, you know? Um, but I, I see a lot of guys trying to say like they don't care and whatever and they moved on. I, I don't know. I don't totally believe that. And and if they truly didn't care, then why are they bringing it up that they don't care? You know. So um, I certainly care. You know. So now, what about the allies? You talked about some of the police officers you work with the you know, over there. There's a lot of people that were left. I've had some of the the, the men that were brought over here either before the withdrawal or I'm going to have one Aziz who I think was during the withdrawal that he came over. Um, you know, talk to me about some of the incredible humans that fought for their own country over there that were left behind when we withdrew. Yeah, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have both my interpreters in the country. Um, definitely accredit them to my life being um, not, you know, taken because their communication skills were everything over there, especially in a, a place where a language not everyone knows, like Farsi or Pashto. Um, and then, you know, I think about all the Afghan commandos that were still there protecting the airport with our guys or the in different parts of the country who couldn't get to the Kabul airport because the Kabul airport ended up being the only way to uh, exit Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, I feel bad for the people who – last minute decided they want to leave Afghanistan. Well, they didn't know the Taliban was enough. You know, there's people over there that helped the United States. They, they helped the allies, but probably wanted to stay in their home country. But then, then they saw it being handed over back to the Taliban. Now they want to get out. And now they got stuck there because of that. So, um, those are the, in the Afghan soldiers who wanted to wear the uniform and dress like me and act like me. Those are the kinds of people we left there who, you know, I've seen videos and internet rumors and stuff like that of police chiefs being executed and soldiers being ripped out of their homes by the Taliban executed. So, you know, it makes you sick to your stomach. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, you became part of the solution. I mean, not only by the job you transitioned to in law enforcement, but also by writing these books. So we'll talk about the rifle in a sec where people can find that but you mentioned that you were writing a second book now and before we start recording you talked about um an active shooter that you had recently and some of the parallels so i don't know if that's something you want to kind of talk about now just as a preface to the second book yeah you know the second book opens up with uh well the first book ends with me you know getting all the answers i need to live a life and and to pass that on to other veterans from the world war ii veterans but then we have a hiccup right i go into law enforcement and it's not the, and, and I have a triggering event where um, I respond to an active shooter where three people are killed um, and the, and everything in the carnage that took place that day reminded me of Afghanistan. And then the next morning I could barely get out of bed. And so what do I do? I go, I pick up the, the rifle and I start going visiting veterans again, start getting their stories. And, and that's how you sp we sparked volume two. Um, more stories that I didn't get to include in the first book, new veterans that I'm meeting that were coming out of the woodwork that um, didn't sign the rifle from before. And 
and then bringing them back overseas. And, and, and so the, the second edition goes into me bringing these guys back to where they fought and walked into the very ground with them. And so, and there's going to be a lot of interesting and controversial stories in this one. Not everyone is just a bravery valor story. We're going to get into some other stuff too. Well, you talked earlier about the healing element of community, of tribalism and being around other warriors. With that perspective, you just had that triggering event. You know, you feel that kind of depression grab you. What were your observations of you immersing yourself with these warriors again? Um, just keeping that brain going, keeping that mind going, I forgot. You know, um, I st- stayed active, stayed busy. That's one thing I took away from these old timers. Once they retired from one job, they went right into the next one. They didn't give themselves time to they didn't give themselves time to think or dwell on situations. Uh, definitely, you know, were very light on the substance abuse, and they, um, and that's the way it. I was able to cope, and it'll be a sad day when every World War II veteran's gone. Absolutely, but you've, you know, you've collected the stories. It's one of my biggest regrets. I didn't start this earlier, but I mean, that just wasn't obviously the path that I took, but was able to grab like i said frank and, and hopefully can find some more before you know we are too late and i had uh dr edith eager who was in auschwitz so that was another interesting perspective of someone who was liberated you know so um before we get to some closing questions where can people find the rifle and then when can we expect the second book yep you can find the rifle on amazon or barnes and noble or books a million uh the rifle by andrew biggio world war two stories um the second book is supposed to be coming out march 20 uh, excuse me november 2023 so we got just under a year before the uh next one comes out brilliant all right well i'd love to get some closing questions before i let you go if that's all right that's fine so we've talked about your book are there any other books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated yeah, um, I loved um, Finding John, which was a firefighter's book about um, the uh, FDNY in New York. Uh, that was a really good book um, about wanting to find one of their guys from the firehouse and a lot of rumors and things that were spread out during 9-11. And that is by, oh man, I can't even think of Andy's last name right now. Shame on me. Um, but the book's called Finding John. Uh, I really didn't like that uh, for a good first responder book. Um, another book that I concluded was, hey, let me walk over to my bookshelf, actually. Let's see. Um, what did I just complete? I j- Oh, this one's a good one. Uh, Three of the Last Screaming Eagles. Uh, this was a good uh book right here three of the last screaming eagles by yos grown that was a decent book uh christmas in bastone was a good book um and i feel like i just read an awesome book oh brothers in arms by um kareem abdul jabbar believe it or not it's about an all black tank tank battalion brothers in arms i love that book too um that was about the 761st tank battalion who i also wrote about Yep. And that was by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Yeah. Really? Yep. That's someone I've actually wanted to reach out to because not only was he obviously an NBA star, he was uh, a martial artist too. So he seems like a very interesting man. Yeah, he wrote a book about an all-black tank unit, the first black tank unit to see combat in the Second World War. And um, that was a, it was a good book. It helped me understand a little bit more because I also wrote about that unit, uh, one of the survivors from that unit. Brilliant. Yep. All right. Well, the same question. What about a movie and or documentary? 
I mean, what am I going to say? The same saving private Ryan that everyone else loves uh, band of brothers. But, um, I love the movie, a midnight clear. I don't know if anyone remembers that uh, movie. It was about world war two. It's called the midnight clear. It's about Americans and Germans meeting each other at the end of the war and how to save each other. Um, a midnight clear. It's, it's a very rare movie to see, but it's a great world war two film. Um, and I've been watching, um, for series, uh, I just finished um, All Quiet on the Western Front and The Forgotten Battle, uh, those two ones about World War II. Is that the new All Quiet? Yep. And The Forgotten Battle is about the British during Operation Market Garden. Beautiful. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, yeah, of course. I probably have plenty, plenty of guys. Yeah. Um, I have a buddy of mine who lost his leg, uh, from my unit, uh, in Iraq, who was a Boston police officer and special operations guy. Beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, we'll, uh, if he's, if he's what you said he is, I won't take his name now, but we can talk about that after. Fantastic. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, you've had this incredible journey obviously you talked about your childhood then the marines and then law enforcement and also you're taking on some of the trauma i'm sure as you're listening to some of these stories because i know i do doing this what do you do to decompress how do you offload some of this yourself yeah um definitely physical fitness um and and my world war ii passion my world war ii hobby going to europe visiting the battlefields um th those will last me months on decompression um you know, being a dad is awesome. Being a husband's awesome. But sometimes when you go right from the police station right to your living room, you don't fully decompress. As much as it is great to play with your kids and, and be there, you don't want them to see any of your negativity or anything you're dwelling on. So I, I keep my World War II hobby and passion pretty pretty pumped up, and I'm getting ready to write my second book. So how do you punctuate between shifts? This is a tangent because I've had this discussion before. I think it was – Someone actually in the coaching world, strength and conditioning, they talked about, you know, even as a coach, it can be tiring. And in that particular group with his trainers, he would create like a window where they would decompress before they went home. And it occurred mm. to me as a firefighter, you know, there's shift change. We throw our gear on the, on the, the hook, we jump in our car and then we just go straight home. Do you have anything deliberate that, because you brought it up, that you do to separate work from home? Uh, yeah, I usually go right from work to the gym. Um, that was something that was always recommended to me. Um, something my wife allows me to do as well. Um, sometimes like right now I'm on a, I got out of work at four and I've been on a podcast with you for the last hour. That's a good one to do. So I, so I try to set my podcast up in around that time. Um, and yeah, like there are times where, you know, I take a little bit of time, not all the work, not all 10 hours, eight hours of my days, all police work. I'll take a good hour and do a little research, even though if I'm not supposed to do that on a department issue computer or department time, sometimes you got to do what's best for you, you know, so. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'm sure people are enthralled. So you talked about where to find the book itself. Where are the best places online to find you? On me, they can find The Rifle on Instagram with an underscore so that's the rifle on instagram or the rifle on facebook brilliant and you have a, a website for the book as well don't you yep the world war 2 rifle.com brilliant 
Well, Andrew, I wanted to say thank you so much. It's been such an interesting conversation. Obviously, your timeline in itself has been fascinating, but all the the stories and obviously we're kind of kindred spirits in a way because I've got to hear some incredible humans as well. But uh, thank you, firstly, for writing the book. I mean, this is something that breaks my heart that we are losing these stories and the, these these voices but you've kept them alive on paper. So I want to thank you so much for what you've done with the books and for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Jim. Appreciate it.